Welcome to Season 3 of A New Voice of Freedom. The podcasts are taken from the four volumes, In Defense of Christianity, written by Ronald Keith Messer. This podcast is taken from the series, Poet's Corner. Podcast 101 is entitled, Pride. Webster's Dictionary defines virtue as a conformity to a standard of right, a particular moral excellence. A vice, of course, is just the opposite a moral depravity or corruption, a moral fault or failing. We often pit the seven heavenly virtues, chastity, temperance, charity, diligence, kindness, patience, and humility against the seven deadly sins, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, envy, wrath, and pride. In Proverbs we read, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift to run to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, he that soweth discord among brethren. Proverbs 6, 16-19 It is universally acknowledged, I suppose, that pride comes before the fall. In Proverbs, we also read, Pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. There are no lack of scriptures condemning pride. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. Isaiah 5, 18. Let not him that is deceived trust in vanity, for vanity shall be his recompense. Job 15.31 The opposite, of course, is praised in holy writ. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Psalms 24, 3-4 Pride is part of the human condition, the natural man. King David said, Every man at his best state is altogether vanity. We can also look to our poets to address the virtues and vices of man. Some poets preach in unforgettable ways so that virtue or vice sticks in one's mind. The following verse by Emily Dickinson, 1830-1886, is as effective as any sermon I know against vanity. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. They'll advertise, you know. How dreary to be somebody. How public like a frog. To tell one's name the lifelong June to an admiring bog. Today, Emily Dickinson is considered one of America's favorite poets. Yet she lived and died in relative obscurity. Another poet, one who enjoyed great fame in his life, Percy Bysshe Shelley, 1782-1822, a leader in the Romantic movement in England, burns the fleeting nature of vanity in your mind by telling a simple tale without moralizing. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand half sunk, A shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculpture well these passions read which yet survive. 
stamped on these lifeless things, the hands that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Osmandius, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of the colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. Words to a poet are like precious stones to a jeweler. They are carefully selected and as carefully set to best effect. The words draw attention to themselves and live on. I challenge you to pick a better phrase than antique land, or trunkless legs, or shattered visage, or sneer of cold command. Such economy and explosive surprise becomes fixed in your mind. You involuntarily condemn vanity and see it for what it is. Another romantic poet of equal stature, but unequal fame, is John Keats, 1795-1821. He died young like Shelley, but his poetry extended his life into immortality. Notice how he addresses the vanity of fame. He captures its elusive nature. If you seek fame, you may not find it, but fame is fickle and may find you. Poetry is compressed. It is a condensed version of complex dissertations and often too rich to digest in one meal. Because just hearing the poem read does not give you time to ponder the lines, I shall take the liberty of breaking it up into artificial stanzas and intrude my comments. Fame, like a wayward girl, will still be coy to those who woo her with two slavish knees, but makes surrender to some thoughtless boy, and dotes the more upon a heart at ease. Keats is speaking from experience. Though he was somewhat recognized in his life because of the power of his imagery, being sickly he died too young to see the full fruits of his labor. Fame teases those who woo her, like a wayward girl. She is coy to those who chase her, but surrenders to those who ignore her. Fame runs from those who pursue her, but dotes on those who are indifferent. She is a gypsy. We'll not speak to those who have not learned to be content without her. A jilt, whose ear was never whispered close, who thinks they scandal her who talk about her. A very gypsy is she. Nihilus born, sister-in-law to jealous Potiphar. The imagery is rich. First fame is like a wayward girl, now fame is a gypsy. She will have nothing to do with those who can't live without her. Nihilus born refers to the Nile River. Nihilus was the god of the Nile River. Potiphar is famous in the story of Joseph. Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph. She was an adulteress, a wanton, and a liar. When Joseph refused her advances, she lied to her husband Potiphar and said Joseph made advances toward her. Fame is not compared to Potiphar's wife. Fame is sister-in-law to jealous Potiphar. Potiphar, without searching for the truth, had Joseph committed to prison for a number of years, which changed the course of history for the house of Jacob. The line suggests that we become imprisoned by fame. Ye lovesick bards, repay her scorn for scorn. Ye artists, lovelorn, madmen that ye are, make your best bow to her and bid adieu. Then, if she likes it, she will follow you. Keats advises poets and artists like himself who are lovesick for fame to bow out. In other words, to withdraw their wooing and bid adieu, to say goodbye. He then adds, if she likes you, fame will follow you. You can't catch fame. She must catch you. You cannot eat your cake and have it too. 
Keats quotes an old adage that captures the paradox of fame. What good is a cake if you can't eat it? It may as well be a plastic display in a store window. On the other hand, if you eat the cake, it is soon gone. It is another way of saying that fame can only exist outside of you. You can't indulge it or it will flee from you. You can only observe it as an impassioned witness, almost as if it is happening to someone else. How fevered is the man who cannot look upon his mortal days with temperate blood, who vexes all the leaves of his life's book and robs his fair name of its maidenhood. Keats is pleading for temperance. Otherwise, you'll be consumed to a fever pitch and chasing the chimera called fame. Fame will consume you. Quote, all the leaves of his life's book means that every passing day will be consumed lusting after fame. It is a form of prostitution or loss of chastity, quote, and robs his fair name of its maidenhood. Fame is more like a fire that consumes one's energy, but it is artificial and meaningless. It is as if the rose should pluck herself on the ripe plum finger its misty bloom, as if a naiad like a meddling elf should darken her pure grot with muddy gloom. The image of a rose plucking itself is brilliant and shows the vanity of fame. Fame is a form of narcissism. It only has the appearance of the adoration of others. One is really adoring himself. A naiad is one of the nymphs of flowing water like a spring or river or creek. According to Britannica, naiads are actually beautiful, light-hearted, and beneficent. However, here, quote, they darken her pure grot with muddy gloom. Fame doesn't bring joy. In fact, fame brings muddy gloom to what, without vanity, would be joyful. But the rose leaves herself upon the briar for winds to kiss and grateful bees to feed. And the ripe plum still wears its dim attire. The undisturbed lake has crystal space. Why then should man, teasing the world for grace, spoil his salvation for a fierce miscreed? Leave the chasing of fame alone. A rose is more beautiful if it is still on the briar for winds to kiss and grateful bees to feed. Fame, like a crystal lake, is best left undisturbed. Keats ends with a question, quote, Why then should man, teasing the world for grace, spoil his salvation for a fierce miscreed? It is a strong religious image. A creed is a guiding principle, a religious belief. A miscreed is a false principle. Fame is false. When you tease the world for grace, in other words, when you seek salvation through fame, you spoil your own salvation. Fame cannot absolve you from sin. Salvation comes only by following true principles, such as your art. Seeking fame is a kind of apostasy from truth. It was Keats who said the famous but enigmatic lines, Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. There is a paradox of language. For example, anyone can do what I just did, listen to my wife read poetry and then translate it into prose. But not anyone can do what Keats just did, listen to my prose and translate it into poetry. Poetry is language elevated, fit for the gods. Though not all poets are prophets, all prophets are poets. Unlike prose, poetry must be explicated to be understood. Every word, phrase, clause, or image counts. Even the sound of words contributes to the meaning. Poetry depends heavily upon allusion, allegory, simile, metaphor, and other tropes. 
One difference between a prophet and a poet is that a prophet reveres one God. A poet reveres many gods. Prophets, though they sometimes employ allusions of other cultures without accepting foreign divinities, generally create their own ethos, and the language of Scripture is consistent to one religious culture. Poets accept many religions. Prophets accept only one religion, and all prophets contribute to the original poem, whether by explication or by extension, and none contradict the other. A poet may at times be a prophet, for he or she may often be privileged with inspiration and vision, and often writes, even without fully comprehending the source, from the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. A true prophet is a prophet, seer, and a revelator, and their field is the past, the present, and the future. A poet speaks by the inspiration of the muses with authority of experience, knowledge, wisdom, and learning. A true prophet speaks by the Holy Ghost with authority from God. A poet may come from any culture, religion, language, or time, but all good poets, like all true prophets, share one thing, the search for truth. They share the imagery in nature, the imagery of the stars of heaven, and the imagery of the culture they are in. Since all things were created by God, when poets are inspired by nature, they are inspired by God for the same evidence of the existence of God that lies before the prophets so plainly lies before them also. Poets and prophets see God everywhere and seek truth in the most unlikely places. I shall end this podcast by having Linda read from Shakespeare's play, As You Like It. The Duke, who is speaking, is in exile and lives off the land in the large woods. But notice how he is improved through nature by his exile. He is speaking for all great poets. Now, my comates and brothers in exile, hath not old custom made this life more sweet than that of painted pomp? Are not these woods more free from peril than the envious court? Here feel we not the penalty of Adam, the season's difference, as the icy fang and curlish chiding of the winter's wind, which when it bites and blows upon my body. Even till I shrink with cold, I smile and say, This is no flattery. These are counselors that feedingly persuade me what I am. Sweet are the uses of adversity, which, like the toad, ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. And this our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. I would not change it. Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast. In Defense of Christianity is available at RonaldMesser.com.